Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You guys seem like a nice crowd. I've been doing the math. You've been laughing at about 33% uh, of the jokes. That's good. You're like, ah, we're gonna sit the next two up. <laughs> it's important that you laugh for the comedian's self-esteem. It's the only tangible evidence we get to know that, you know, you like us. But some of you don't laugh, that's what you notice. Even if you enjoy the show, you don't laugh. You just sit in the dark, smiling at a comedian like a creepy, awkward German tourist. <laughs> no matter how funny you think the comedian is, you just sit there going, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I enjoy everything you are saying, but I will give you nothing to work with. <laughs> You think you are doing badly, but nine, you are doing very well. I enjoy you very much, but you would never know. I smile at you silently in this hotel basement while I watch you sweat on stage. Contemplating your career options in life purpose. Schadenfreude, wunderbar, das Otto. You're listening to Talking Tricks, the home of amazing stories from magic, circus, variety, and comedy performers. Hello and welcome to Talking Tricks, a brand new podcast presented by us, Kane and Abel, two people with the exact same voice. Each week we will bring you news, views, and in-depth interviews from the world of entertainment. So if you have an interest in magic, circus, variety, comedy, or just listening to a good story, make sure you subscribe to Talking Tricks on iTunes and Podbean. This week we are coming to you from Shropshire, our home county. We travel back to Shrewsbury Friday night, did a show Saturday evening. Evening at Crifton's Parish Hall, a sellout show. It's really nice for us to do that kind of show. We actually started in this business doing village halls, parish halls, church halls, all those kind of shows. It's really good fun to get out and perform in the Shropshire countryside. Uh, we want to thank Paul Beck for leaving Shropshire, moving to LA. That opened it up. I'm sure normally Ellesmere folk would have booked uh, Paul Beck, but he wasn't here, so they had to book us. So here we are. Also want to thank Paul Beck for introducing me to today's guest. Today's guest is Byron Bertram. He is a Netflix movie star. He is a TV star in his native Canada and North America. He's been in some pretty big TV shows. So we're going to chat about all of that during today's podcast. We're also going to talk about his beginnings as a trickster, a juggler, escapologist, where he used to play his trade. We're going to talk about how he migrated from outdoor performer to stand-up comedian. He's now one of the top headliners at comedy clubs all over the world. We spoke to him when he was in London, running around London doing loads and loads of stand-up gigs. Byron Bertrand joins us in a minute. But before then, we want to say if you are enjoying this podcast, which we know you are, because a lot of people have been sending us some really, really lovely emails, some really lovely Facebook messages. That's all really great. But do us a favour. Tell the world. Share about the podcast on social media. Rate, review and subscribe the podcast. We've got a five star review. We're holding on to that baby. Please do continue to promote the podcast for us. But for now, we'll get into it with Byron Bertrand. Joined here on uh, Talking Tricks by Byron Bertrand. You're going to find out a lot about him. Very interesting guy over this conversation. But before then, Byron, to yeah. help our listeners understand a little bit more about you. We're going to play a game called 
What kind of person are you? What are you? So, to kick us off, Byron, there's two kinds of people in this world. Mm. One will stop at traffic lights yeah. and press the buzzer. Right. The other one will stop at traffic lights and not press the buzzer. Right. And wait for someone else to come and press the buzzer for them. Which kind of person are you, Byron? Uh, it depends if my hands are full. If my hands are full, then I'm just praying somebody will, will press that buzzer. But if not, I'll just press it like way more than necessary, so it'll beep a million times. I don't know if it does that in England, and people, will, somebody will be like, "You only need to press it once." But my OCD just wants to just keep pressing like a little kid in an elevator or lift, as you call it. Talking of streets, before we move on to our next question, yeah. in what kind of person are you? You started your career on the streets in entertainment. Absolutely. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. I learned how to juggle in this theater program for youth, and it's like summer school for the performing arts and. Got uh, artist parents that kind of champion my uh, crazy wannabe uh, performing shit. And uh, then I saw people doing street performing in Vancouver, Canada, where I'm from, and, and I just fell in love with it. And I uh, went out there and sucked for a few years until I stopped sucking. Yeah, well, anyone that's done street shows will know that's the way to do it. That's the way to do it. But what kind of things were you doing on the streets then? You mentioned that you kind of learned to juggle, but what else did the act look like? It really wasn't that much of an act. I like did this history of juggling thing where I started juggling rocks and then I started juggling just like gold bean bags and then just fire and I don't know I tried to do this and then I started playing the saxophone in between and like I didn't have any sense of like transitions or gathering crowd it was just sort of chaos and then I tried doing weird shit like getting people to dare me to like eat an onion and stuff like that and it was just sloppy it was gross it was just <laughs> what else did I do played saxophone on a unicycle for a while and it sounds really cool but it just kind of looked really awkward and sounded terrible and uh, you also brought escapology into it as well yeah and then i learned how to do the escape thing and then i threw that in there and once i started doing that that's when i really started feeling okay this is gathering a crowd and captivating a crowd and then i really built the escape to be sort of the, the cornerstone of my my street act and, and learned all about sort of uh, just how to prolong the show and drag it out and hype it up and build it up and make yourself like look like you're getting stuck and you know really build that sense of suspense so basically yeah getting out of this canvas sweater is what really uh made made me money it sounded like there was a lot of trial and error certainly with the kind of things you were doing on the street oh absolutely try fail try fail try succeed you don't like anything like comedy too it's like a science experiment you don't know what's going to work until you do it or do it a number of times whenever uh, anyone will ask me you know how do i start street performing or what should i do when i st when i start street performing it's normally magicians that might might come to me and ask me and i do always just say you know just be prepared to to die on your ass <laughs> yeah in front of the whole of the population trial and error is the main thing and you know obviously to try and draw out your tricks as much as possible because as soon as you've done one trick especially with magic people are going to move on yeah, i wonder if, totally. you, if you had a piece of advice to to a young performer that's maybe thinking about starting a street act what what might that be oh a less is more so yeah drag out the tricks and uh, transitions are everything you, you want to sort of build up to this climax and then people happen upon you you're not people aren't coming to see street performers they just happen to be walked by and they see this this thing that's happening so there are also most people have, if you ask hey can i spare half an hour 45 minutes you know everybody would say no everybody would say no so it's your job to like hypnotize them into feeling like they can't leave until they get a payoff 
So if you do like some amazing trick and then you have a conclusion to that trick, a lot of people are going to leave. So that's why acts that are really successful are sometimes the most annoying and frustrating to watch because it's all just about like getting up on that unicycle or on that pole or on that slack rope or getting into that straight jacket and something that'll take like, you know, 20 minutes at least to, to finish that trick. So less is more. If you got one long trick, prolong the shit out of it and you notice the crowd just, they don't have a chance to leave because they're not satisfied enough to leave. At this point, Byron, we're going to return to our game. There's two kinds of people in the world. One, when hanging out in an airport, might spray some perfume or aftershave on their clothes right. and be like, great. I smell good for the rest of the journey. <laughs> the other kind of person will actually purchase duty-free products. Which one are you, Byron? Oh, well, I purchased some duty-free on this trip to uh, give to my uh, housemate. Got up some nice Canadian whiskey. So I'm, I'm uh, perfumeless. I don't want wear much perfume. And I don't wear any I don't know of. And I mentioned airports, Byron, because you're a well-traveled man. Yeah. Um, talk to us about uh, some of the countries you've performed in. You're kind of a chameleon to a certain uh, aspect with, with accents. You seem to pick things up wherever you go. So what are some of your favorite countries you performed in and uh, some of your favorite accents to pick up? Well, I've been to Australia about 10 times. Um, yeah, definitely like Australia. I've uh, been to New Zealand a few times as well. Um, I've been to uh, Holland. I've been to Belgium. I've been to Germany. I just went to Sweden. I've uh, been to England a lot. I've uh, been to Scotland a number of times. I've been to Ireland. I've been to uh, the Isle of Man. Um, what else have I been? Been to Denmark. Been to uh, Singapore. Been to Hong Kong. I've been to Japan. Um, I've been to Hallisale, Dubai. Dubai, Hallisale. Uh, where else have I been? I've been to, uh, you know, all, <laughs> been to Greece. Oh, my Greek accent sucks. I've been to France, been to Spain, been to America. I've been to Mexico. Mexico. Is that about it? It might be about it. I've been about 23 different... I've been to Macau for an afternoon. Uh, yeah, about 23 countries, maybe. Wow. So was the kind of first time that you realized you could go out and perform in... As all of these countries and travel the world, was that when the kind of street performing started to kick off for you? Yeah, well, when I started making a little bit of money of it, and then I just heard about other people doing doing shows in different countries, and I, I met other people from other countries, and I was like, I think I'm gonna give it a go. And I think my first outside of uh, Canada experience was was in Holland when I was 19, and um, did Lisa Plain Square, and then I did, uh, and then I did Leicester Square and uh, London, and I tried doing Paris, and I tried doing Spain. Barcelona, that those suck because I didn't speak the languages. But people speak English in Holland. People speak English in England, obviously. So and they went okay. And then I was like, oh my god. And then from there, I was like, you know, I heard about Australia. And then I was like, yeah, I think I'm gonna try Australia in the winter. From there, I heard about like New Zealand, and then you know the states, and then just sort of like one thing led to another. Do you have any pitches uh, around the world that you're kind of particularly fond of? Any pitches? Yeah. Oh. So for those, sorry, those that aren't streeties I, that maybe listen to any any street pitches, which is obviously where street performers ply their trade mm. uh, around the world. So yeah, any any pitches that outside of festivals. Um, well, I mean, if there's a particular festival pitch that you enjoy, for example, right. up in Edinburgh or somewhere in, in Adelaide or something in Melbourne, um, then yeah, by all means, that would, or outside uh, of that as well would be great to hear about. Right. Uh, well, Vancouver, my home pitch is uh, Grand Island Triangle Square. Performed there more than anywhere. 
That's my home pitch. I'm very comfortable there. Ottawa, which is in Canada, the Byward Market. That's a great spot where it can be. Edinburgh, Mount 2 I like a lot. Uh, and the High Street, of course. Uh, Covent Garden, I never really cracked. I always felt like the audiences just don't speak enough English. I feel like there's always so many Italian and French and Spanish and German, like just school kids. They just don't understand English. So for some reason, I, my show's very verbal. So that spot's always been kind of tough with me. I'd say some of the best shows I've ever done would be uh, Dublin, Ireland. Uh, this this festival 10 years ago, I just World Busker Fest. I think that's probably the, the highlight of my busking career as far as uh, the amount of money I made in amount of short period of time. It was just like gravy. So is it kind of to do with, with the people that are around and the people that make up a city that, that you feel is part of your reason for for going down as well as you do on certain pitches? I think a lot of it, yeah, is depends on the demographic of people. Like, if, if people are tourists, basically, if you got a lot of tourists or people that got uh, disposable income and time that are sort of hanging around in a good mood, like, you know, it doesn't seem to matter really the city or the country if it's, you know, they understand English anyway. But if they got disposable income and they're there on a destination place, like if it's just some thoroughfare, or the middle of some intersection in the center of the city, it's it's really tough because people just don't have time, the focus, they don't give a shit. If they're going down to like some waterfront area where there's some farmers markets or there's some there's some touristy destination spot where you add to the atmosphere of the place, then those places are always more lucrative. So it doesn't really yeah, it doesn't seem to matter the city or the country, it matters just kind of the spot and the time of day and the time of year, all these little sort of factors. Yeah, there's so many variables. I, I want to talk about your your moving to in, indoors. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so to speak, you're now a very established stand-up comedian. You travel all over the world, like like with your street performing, and and, uh, and and just jump on a stage and perform all over the world. But I kind of want to know, when you were on the streets, was that always something that, that you wanted to do? Were you always kind of looking to kind of move indoors? Yeah, I mean, I always wanted to be like in duper indoor stuff, like acting and and stand up and like sketch stuff like that. I was like when I was a teenager, I wanted to be on Saturday Night Live. I was like, I always loved that show when I was a kid. And then, and then, so I always had a real fond memory of, of stand up and stuff like that. So I always wanted to get into it eventually. But street performing is just something I really fell into early. And then I was like, oh my God, I love this. And I made some money and just met some amazing people and had this amazing kind of lifestyle. It just seemed this pure, honest, amazing thing of gathering people of all different walks of life bringing them together for a period of time and they give you what if and how much money they can and it's just such a beautiful thing but I always wanted to do comedy so it kind of like a parallel did them so I did street for a number of years and then I sort of started jumping in and open mics and stand up and and I kind of just became like you know kind of like a mutual fund investment and then a few years later I got into acting and, and it just became sort of like different funds I invest in like time and energy and, and stuff like that so sometimes I'm just doing way more street in the summer and then I'll be doing more stand-up in the fall or you know and then I'll book some acting stuff if I'm in Vancouver for a while and then if I you know get some auditions and book something so I kind of got my hands in a few different areas which which is good and bad. You mentioned being a kid sitting there watching Saturday Night Live being inspired I wonder yeah. who were some of the the performers that you grew up loving? I loved Phil Hartman when Saturday Night Live and Chris Farley and uh, Dana Carvey and some of those Saturday Night Live casts in like the early 90s. Dennis Miller, Norm MacDonald. Those were some of the Saturday Night Live casts people I love. Uh, stand-up comedy. Uh, love the late Andy Kaufman, Bill Hicks. Well, let's see, now I really like Bill Burr and 
Louis C.K. Despite whatever, I don't, you know, he's still fucking funny. Dave Chappelle was amazing. Jeez, who did I? I like those guys later. I really think Norm Macdonald was one of the uh, my favorite, probably one of my favorite Saturday Night Live members. And I'm interested to know about early time. I mean, it's a, it's a great way to kind of to move from street to, to being a, a, a club stand-up. Yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of people maybe think of it as being like, okay, well, I've got to stop that now and start doing that. It, it's not. It's great. You can go and you can work the streets and yeah, you can yeah. do that all okay. weeks and then pick up the open mics in the evening and, and build up like that. I yeah, you don't have to, like, you know, stop one and then jump on the other. You know, like, no, I'm doing this now. It's like, you know, people, like, always, a lot of times, people have a day job and then they do open mics and then they, even if they're making established comics, they'll have different revenue sources or, you know, a lot of times. Or even do, like, you know, some sort of thing part-time. I mean, I'm interested to kind of understand what, what your initial kind of stand-up act looked like. Obviously, you weren't going into into the rooms and, uh, and juggling or doing... I did doing my first set, I did a bit of juggling. I did a few jokes about being, like, a virgin and stuff like that or just... You know, not being able to get laid, pretty sort of transparent, you know, really young, late teens, early 20s, kind of just bullshit. And then, uh, oh, here's a few juggling tricks. Like, so it wasn't really, uh, wasn't much of a, much of a comedy set. But stand-up's different than, like, street show. Street show is like you develop a show, you know, and then you stick with that show and you refine that show. In stand-up, it's like you keep writing new bits. Yeah. And then you could just be like, how much material do you got? And it's like, you know, I got a couple hours of material. But, you know, be like, I'm doing five minutes of it today, or I'm doing ten minutes of it today, or I'm doing half an hour, or an hour, or 20 minutes. This seems to be the most common set in the UK. So it's kind of like, it's not like your act. Your act keeps, like, you just keep writing and evolving. It's street performing, it's like, all right, there's my act. It works. Good enough. In the early days of comedy, were you finding yourself relying on some of the, maybe, the stock audience participation lines that you might use on the street if ever you were kind of a play, little bit. playing with a bit? Would you kind of chuck some of those? Yeah, in? a little bit, for sure. And you know what, I kind of, it's, it's, you know, it's weird. It's like street performing, but there's totally different things. In street performing kind of got me in trouble in stand-up, because street performing, it's all like, hey, do you see that guy doing that line? Yeah, just steal it. There's no repercussions. It's just really a lot of this sort of carbon copy, cut and paste, this sort of tradition of magic. Everybody's doing cups and balls. You got like Clone Corner, Magic Corner. Same with Covent Garden or Edinburgh. A lot of these festivals, it's just like you get a million people doing this, having the same props, doing pretty much interchangeable acts, you know, apart from their personality a bit. But, and it seems to be just totally socially acceptable. Stand up is just like a premise that's close to another guy. Then, you know, people are all just like, oh, he's a thief, he's a hack, he's a piece of shit, I fucking hate him. Oh, God, I'll never. Then I would maybe throw some lines subconsciously even that were kind of hacky. And then it would just be like, Byron's a thief, Byron's a hack. So it's like my street bled into my stand up and then kind of gave me a bad reputation early on. But I had to fight extra hard to really try not to, to do that because it's, uh, it's an easy habit to, to do, to rely on your sort of street kind of uh, walk by shit or. Uh, you know, maybe occasionally I'll throw like a street line if it's just circumstantial. But no, everything in stand-up is 100% original. I work hard at not letting that street stock shit bleed into your uh, stand-up. You mentioned it's original. Something I love about watching you do stand-up is it's, it's very authentic. And I feel the kind of things that you discuss are maybe they're not your typical, I'm a virgin, I fancy someone I've seen on Facebook. It feels a very authentic act. Were you quite keen to, to kind of talk about quite personal issues from very early on or is that something that you kind of learned to do no well i guess i never had like a you know a limit to feel i think it was just more life experience it was just kind of accumulated material and then just trial and error and then just being like oh that's a good idea but i've never really had any early uh blockage of anything where i'm like no i don't want to i'm too i don't want to bring up that kind of thing or stuff like that if i can find funny in anything i'll talk about it. i don't really have much of a 
oh, I shouldn't touch that subject or anything like that, at least for personal kind of stuff. It's more about like, how can I make that funny? So I think it's just, you get better at trying to find the funny and weird, uncomfortable, tragic, personal kind of stuff. Do you kind of sit down and be like, right, this, this is my life. This, these are some things that happen that might be funny. How can I turn that into a funny story? Or do you kind of things happen, for want of a better word, because it's a gross word, more organically, as if you're just kind of chatting or, or A little bit. A, a lot of stuff happens organically. If I think something funny, then I'll be like, oh, that's funny. Or somebody, oh, yeah, right. And then I'll write it down on my, my iPhone on my notes. And then I'll try to flesh it out later on my laptop. Or I'll just sometimes... If I'm on stage and it just comes out spontaneously, I don't really have like sort of a general rule, but it's a mixture of organic stuff I write down, try to flush out and write about impromptu in the moment, throw in there kind of things. Or if I'm like working on a specific sort of theme, if there's some sort of theme show or something like that, then it actually makes it easier. It limits your focus on, okay, if you're writing about uh, this family or, or some place you've been, then it'll give you more focus. And sometimes there's like theme shows, or if you're doing like a roast, then you gotta think of shit like just burning this person. But I think a lot of it, most, the majority of my stuff is observational stuff that I thought of organically, and I wrote it down and then try to flush it out and then uh, bring it on stage. You have to tell me if, in what ways this differs to the UK and, and, and Canada, but obviously as you mentioned in the UK, you might start as an open mic, build yourself up with maybe a, a five and then a 10 minute routine, and then headliners might be might be as much as, uh, or as little as 20 minutes. Right. I wonder, A, is that the same over in Canada? And then B, how long was it until you got yourself a full hour and then started taking that show around to festivals and places like that? Oh, right. Well, let's see. I mean, it's similar in that you start doing five, seven minute kind of, you know, five minute sets at open mics and all that kind of stuff. Here, it seems to be like if you're headlining, you just, there's like three comics doing 20 minutes. It seems to be the kind of format and then you got a couple breaks in between or you got four comics doing 20 minutes and have one break in between or, or whatever. It seems to be like people don't really usually do much more than 20 minutes. Canada, it seems to be, or North America, it seems to be like you start five minutes and then, you know, you might get some 10 minute spots and then you get some guest spots on the weekends of a comedy show and then you get to like uh, co-middle where you do like, you know, 10 or 15 minutes and then, uh, and then you MC, uh, which is comparing. But the format of the comedy show, like in North America, usually is you got uh, the MC, the compare, he does like 10 to 15 minutes off the top. Then he brings on the middle, and the middle does about 20, 25, and then the headliner comes and does like 40, 45. And that's like an hour and a half show, and there's no breaks. It's here, it just needs to be compare 20 minutes break, compare 20 minutes break, compare 20 minutes the end of the show. Yeah, so I don't really know, because I never started here. Yeah. I kind of just started here when I was kind of established. But it took me, I don't know, like... Eight, seven, eight years before I, I actually headlined my first comedy club. Yeah. Where did like 45 minutes, seven-ish years into the game where somebody finally gave me their just, all right, you want to headline this weekend? I was like, all right, my first headline weekend in this club. And what was the club? Uh, it was called Laugh Lines. It was in uh, Vancouver, suburb of Vancouver. And yeah, it went, went really well. Um, but I look back at that stuff now and I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm such a better comic than then. But you know, you always hopefully keep growing. Absolutely. So I wonder at the minute then, are you kind of pretty much a headliner or are you still yeah, no, going in the middle? I'm a headliner. No, I mean, I'm in Canada. I headline everywhere. The States, it's like nobody knows who the fuck I am. Australian, not really. Here, there seems to be like, yeah, I'm in with a few places when I'm here. But they're, you know, 20 minutes to me is pretty easy. It's just, all right, 20 minutes, you know. And here it's different. It's like, can you open the 20 minutes, open the first bracket here, and then, you know, go to the other side of town and close it. And you're like rushing to get to another spot. 
here it doesn't seem to be like sort of that easy headliner culture. It seems to be just like everybody's doing 20 minutes. Once they get to a certain level, everybody's doing 20 minutes. And that's what you do. And then and then you build your, your hour if you're doing like an Edinburgh or a one-man show. Then it's like I'm building my hour. With your comedy and certainly with your, your headline spot or your hour, which is obviously right. in Canada not that much longer than the hour. is obviously, you know, it's only an extra 15 minutes. Sometimes, sometimes it could be an hour. Yeah. Sometimes I'll just be like an MC and the headliner. So the MC will do 20, 25, half an hour, and then the headliner will do an hour. But usually the show's about 90 minutes in total. And will there be a, a theme to, to your material, or is it very much a, a collection of stories? It's a bit of a collection, observation story. I mean, it depends um, what I'm feeling, you know, what I'm more uh, passionate about that point. Or if it's like a corporate gig, I'll try to be a bit more cleaner. It, it sort of depends on what I'm just really feeling at that point. Because I keep writing. I try to keep writing, so I'll do what I find is freshest and most exciting to me but still works when I'm doing like a headline set and um, so it could be a mixture of things it could be sex relationship it could be sports it could be personal insecurities it could be body images talking about being an actor it could be like a whole sort of there's not like one straight theme like in a fringe show where I'm just like I'm doing a whole show on computers or I'm doing a whole show on bread or something like that. I got a one-man show about toast or some shit like that. I got an hour on toast. And that that seems to be the Edinburgh kind of fringe or or the Australia comedy festivals in Australia and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think that's pretty fair. People almost yeah. try to be as what's the most weirdest thing that I yeah. can drag out for an hour. Yeah, exactly. The weirdest thing I can bring up for an hour that have like maybe this sort of niche audience. The number one podcast for great stories from the world of magic, circus, comedy, and variety. You're listening to Talking Trick. Well, I hope you're enjoying the interview with Byron Bertrand so far. We're going to have a little snippet of Byron Bertrand's comedy. I'm going to play a little bit of that for you now. It's all about sport, because in a minute in our interview, me and Byron are going to talk about sport, which is great, because I never get to talk about sport on this podcast, because it's Talking Tricks. You want to hear about juggling, magic, circus, comedy, variety, and I've got all that. And I will continue to do that every week, but we're going to have a little snippet of sport. We're going to play a bit of Byron's comedy for you now, talking about sport. I've had a nice sporty weekend, actually. As I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, I was up in Shropshire for a gig on Saturday. Well, Sunday afternoon, I went down to the New Meadow, I think we call it now, Shrewsbury Town's ground, to watch Shrewsbury Town Football Club play Salford City, a one-all draw in the FA Cup first round. It was an early game, it was 12.45, which meant the game was finished and I was in my local Shropshire Boozers very early in the day. It was a long old session catching up with friends. But here we go, here's a bit of Byron Bertrand talking about sport and then back into the interview. You know, I think regardless of what race you are, what culture you are, what nationality you are, what your religion politics are, one thing brings us together and that's sports, right? Especially soccer. I've been traveling around the world, I was just in England, crazy place soccer. 90% of the world loves that game. Outside of North America, it's the only game where the score could be 0-0, but a nation will riot. <laughs> you think somebody's gonna score, they never do. You hear the play-by-play, -play, it's like, it's Johnson and Jones on a two-on-one. It's Johnson, he's all in the clear. A glorious opportunity for Johnson and... Back to Smith. All Smith needs to do is tap it into a wide open net and... Back to Wilson. Oh my God, what a splendid run. I'm gonna do backflips and cartwheels and light fireworks out of my bottom. I was thinking, God save the Queen. This is absolute brilliance and... Back to Jones. Surely this is going to be the winner and... Offside, final whistle, nil nil. <laughs> It's like trying to sneeze for 90 minutes. Ah, 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 damn it! 
just a question that I don't feel I've ever asked anyone this question on this podcast, or probably will, just because you mentioned sports, and it's certainly in the world of magic, definitely different in comedy, but in the world of magic, it's very rare that I'll meet someone that is really into sports. Right. So me and my brother are obviously very, very much into football. Oh, football right, right. Fans. Who's your team? Uh, Southampton. Oh, okay. Southampton. And we'll, um, we very rarely meet magicians that are into sports. And same with uh, street performers, circus guys. They tend to not be that into sport. Yeah, they're, kind, of, they're, they're kind of nerdy and they're just like, sports, please. <laughs> that gets in the way of my Magic the Gathering following. Exactly. But yeah. You're a big sports fan yourself. Yeah, yeah. I love, I love soccer. Well, football, you know, you fucking don't even know why they call it soccer. <laughs> and, and hockey, obviously. Ice hockey. And, and kind of, what, what are some of your teams that you watch? And what is it about, about sports that you enjoy? And, and kind of, do you feel um, that sports-based material still, still works with a crowd that might not be? Because it's often hard to tell if they're... You know, in into sports. Oh, sports material always does great. But it, it, if you make it accessible to everybody, I mean, if you're not just being like real specific, hey, what's that player that you know? Maybe only some of you know that makes that other player you don't know look like that other team you don't give a shit about. Like you know, you get kind of pretty. I usually when I talk about soccer or hockey, I get pretty general that most people would get it. You don't even have to like sports to understand. So, but yeah, my team's the Vancouver Canucks hockey team. I'm from Vancouver. Always. Like them, I kind of jumped on the bandwagon when they almost won the Stanley Cup, and it brought everybody together. And I just thought it was just so amazing. And and then they lost, and we rioted. And then we, uh, but I was like, all right, well, I'm a fan now. And then uh, we we made it again to the finals, and we lost again, and then we rioted yet again. But anyway, it's just ridiculous. But I love hockey, and then football. I I love the English national team, even though they don't play much. Just you root for your ancestry, you jump on your sort of. I got British ancestry, so I'm just. I got a lot of British friends, so you just pledge your allegiance to them and or whatever team. And then uh, so between them, the Canucks and uh, the Vancouver Whitecaps, they're my football team, and. In Vancouver. And the Canadian national team, which barely plays, and they suck too. Yeah. Basically, every team I root for ends in failure. Well, yeah. as a Southampton supporter, I'm you know, kindred you know. spirits. Yeah, exactly. I'm not allowed to have nice things in sports, and I feel very hard done by and victimized every time I, I invest in sports. And it's just a horrible, horrible hangover for a little payoff, but uh, I'm not going to stop. Where are some of your favorite places to perform then, uh, stand-up-wise, whether it's you know the, the clubs in Vancouver that... The, kind of been performing for years and you really love or if there's festivals that you've gone to or other, other clubs maybe I know you perform in London as, as much as possible when you're here yeah, you yeah. do run around the city and perform at a lot of uh, yeah I love London I, I mean it's like part of me wishes I, I live here but I got stuff in Canada and you know I'm trying to go to the states more but uh i'd say top secret comedy club is probably my favorite comedy club in the world i, I love it guy mark rothman who uh, he's, he's awesome and uh, he's been so good to me but that yeah that club's probably my favorite uh, yuck yucks in vancouver is uh, a really good club that's kind of my home club which i feel really comfortable at yuck yucks in toronto is uh, a really fantastic club edinburgh fringe just always it's just magical you know doing the free fringe it's just such a magical thing trying to get people in passing the hat it's like it really is kind of street performing meets stand-up we must have just missed each other with with edinburgh's because my first year in a venue was four years ago my first year on the street was 11 years ago oh right my first ever street show so you oh, wow. can imagine how that went right so i went up there and then realized i need to come back down to somewhere like covent garden right. <laughs> and play this trade a bit more talk to me about the fringe and kind of your kind of venue shows and also how many years you you were there doing i only doing done it like three times the the, the indoor fringe in yeah. uh, edinburgh it was just it, it's, it's a lot of fun 
but but I mean the street in Edinburgh and then the indoor in Edinburgh. It's, it's like you know I try to cross promote. It's just the whole experience of Edinburgh. It's just and I haven't gone for like five years. I got to go next year. It's, it's long long overdue. It's, it's a challenge to try and get people in there, and then you just you just feel like I want to fill this place. You know my ego's on the line. Passing the hat at the end of it and seeing how much you make after a stand up show is totally a unique thing. It's like bring street performing into stand up in a way, which is it's a funny marriage between the two. Yeah, and it could be a could be an hour long bottle speech really Absolutely. if you want. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're lucky enough to do Adelaide every year now. We're lucky enough to do Edinburgh every year. There's a couple of uh, UK festivals that we do, Brighton, Bath, and places like that. But I, I wonder, as a Canadian, what is it that makes the F- Edinburgh Fringe so much kind of different to any other festival in the world? Well, it's, it's the biggest. I mean, it's just insane. There's like 4,000 shows going on. Plus the old gothic you just backdrop of it, the whole moody feel. You feel like you're in a different time, you're in a different place, you're in a different like universe almost. And just every kind of walk of life there. You know, there's the most nutty of the freaks to the most, you know, temperate of conservative performers. Just every kind of walk of life when it comes to performers. People, there's something for everybody in that play. Like absolutely something for everybody. If you're in a dance, if you're in a drama, if you're in a comedy, if you're in a freak shit, shit if you're just anything you want. Kid shows, it's, there's something for everybody. What's the sort of fringe scene like in Canada? Because I, I do see, you know, Toronto Fringe. Yeah. You know, obviously, Montreal is huge with Just for Last. What are the festivals like over there? Edmonton is the best fringe. Edmonton's fantastic. But it's it's definitely limited in scope. You can only charge a certain amount of, for ticket prices. There's only a certain amount of venues. It's... Um, but it's, it's a really nice festival. Edmonton and Winnipeg is, is a really good one. Vancouver's okay. Toronto's okay. It's like a bunch of people that always do that Canadian fringe circuit year after year from all around the world as well. And you also you get a billet too if you get accepted, but it is kind of a lottery thing. You get it, you know, anybody could enter the lottery and it is kind of like Edinburgh or, or Adelaide or all that stuff. It's like, yeah, you could come. Good luck find your venue. Register your show and then uh, uh, good luck. See ya. Edmonton, it's like, no, we, we, we'll, we, you know, there's a lottery and we'll see if we can get you a venue and if you don't get the venue then you're not in it. Are they growing at the Canadian festivals? Are they, are they getting bigger, do you know? or They're getting a little bigger. Not to the same degree as like Adelaide or Edinburgh where you just be like every year like, holy shit, they just closed a whole new block. You know, or just, oh my God, they just got something even more insane. They grow them, but it does a much smaller pace. It's definitely a smaller, more sort of tempered down kind of festival. But some, Edmonton is the biggest, and then Winnipeg is the second biggest, and then the other ones are kind of just a bit smaller. I want to talk to you about your acting. Yeah, yeah. Career, but before then, I don't, I don't want to leave comedy away too much. Is there kind of, what are some of your aspirations and goals um, with comedy? Oh, comedy? Well, it's, it's basically, my biggest thing is trying to, Sell myself, being like a 40-year-old white heterosexual man who's just funny and doesn't really have something that stands out as far as like, not not to be like, not funny enough to, it's just like, what is, who am I? You know, if I was a gay Japanese person in a wheelchair, it's easily brandable. That's so branding myself, finding my narrative, what is my thing, who's my audience? And and, uh, that's my problem is I'm a bit too general in a way that I appeal to maybe too many people that I don't really have this niche that I could grab from. If I did all sports material, then I could really just appeal to some sort of demographic. I did all material on certain, some subject, I could maybe find that market. My problem is like, how do I find that market? How do I get management? I'm trying to find management. Somebody who could sign. I need pimp. I need a good pimp. That's, that's <laughs> my thing. I need a good pimp and I, I don't know. Good pimps are hard to come by. Comedy pimps listening. Yeah. Byron, Byron yeah. is ready. I'm ready. Willing Comedy to be pimps. pimped out. So, um, you know, good management, break in the States, get on some late night shows, get into some more uh, high profile festivals, release a new album, get more airplay, get more money there. 
try to do like theater tours stuff like that basically yeah I just need to find the right dicks to suck and I don't know where they are just walking around blind with my mouth open <laughs> yeah I don't want to suck the wrong dick when you suck the wrong dick it's like ah oh, shit you know it's like oh this guy you know you blow this guy and then it's like oh he just runs an open mic and you're like fuck I thought he had real clout he doesn't sneaky open mic yeah I was like how am I going to segue that luckily across to acting oh yeah same with acting you know so if if there's like uh, another Weinstein or something so with acting uh, when when did that become um, something that you began to pursue and and talk to us about because you've been in some pretty big things you've got a a good looking showreel there's a a film of which that we'll we'll talk about in a minute because that's the one feature film I've seen you in right throughout um, but yeah talk to me about acting and your your journey into it at the start well yeah acting's like something I just you know was in high school dramas and stuff like that and it was one of those like side things that I just like oh I got an agent or I got a head I got a headshots and I took some acting courses on and off throughout the years but I kind of just like was on and off I was just put one foot sort of in and then I finally got a couple agents and they just you know auditioned me for like stupid commercials and stuff like that I did some background extra work a little bit here and there. And then I finally started getting auditions for uh, some commercials. And then I finally booked a commercial. And then and then I finally booked another commercial. I booked a few commercials. And then I started booking some really small little things. And it basically just, just auditioning. You get, you get an agent, get a headshot, you get a resume. They keep sending you out. And it's like playing this low odds lottery ticket. And a lot of it, you know, you take some courses, you develop your chops. But it really is kind of my secondary thing because it's not like this tangible thing I could really uh, find success in. I know so many people that take all these courses and they're just amazing actors or they do all these plays and they're and you know they're, they're great but nobody sees them. They'll do all these independent things. Nobody gives a shit. Nobody sees it. So I'm, I'm quite cynical about it. A stand-up I really feel I could work on is, is acting and it could be like you're perfect but your one is too tall. It's like great. Yeah, you know, you take all these courses, and then you just auditioning for, you know, race homophobic oil worker, you know, racist truck driver number two, whatever, and you're like, all right. So I said one line, just be, you know, hand me that wrench, and then what? I don't get it, and then okay, maybe have another audition in a month. But when you book it, it's great. Yeah, if you book it, it's great, and then it's like I, I love doing it, but it's just, it's it's a it's a frustrating journey. It's a very frustrating journey. You got to be patient, and you got to just not sort of really care that much. Well, you do, but you don't, I guess. Because acting is so out of your hands. It's just so, film and TV is so out of your hands. Yeah, it, it is so shallow. And something I think that might be quite interesting, anyone that's kind of seen you do stand-up, seen you on the street, will be like, Byron, Byron's acting, I'd imagine. He, he does a lot of comedy roles, or he's typecasting a lot of to- comedy roles. But you find yourself typecasting... Uh, just, just bad guy. Different, yeah, yeah, bad yeah, just bad guy. I guess I got this intense look. <laughs> so all these last year was great. I just booked all, like, I got, like, killed, like, three times. I just this bad guy, dickhead number one, whatever. And uh, it was great. I love that. Fine, typecast me. Ty- you know, people's like, oh, you don't want to get typecast. I'm like, I want to get cast. Yeah. All right? So whatever. Bad guy it up. Talk to me about some of the uh, series that people may have seen you in, because um, you were in some pretty pretty well-known series. Yeah, the show Riverdale, which is the Archie Comics uh, thing. Just had a little, little part of the security guard. Grumpy. And then uh, I was in this show called um, Dirk Stanley. Had a great little part there where I got my hand chopped off and killed. Uh, another bad guy thing. And then uh, this movie, Game Over Man, which I was uh, throughout the whole thing, just playing a bad guy as well. And I uh, shot at a cop, and then I was just hanging around as, as a goon, and I finally get killed. But that was great. I was on set for a long time, and that was that was a nice little payday. 
we were talking before we turned this on how I'd seen it and it's a really silly film. Oh, it's but ridiculous. It's a really fun film. Yeah, yeah. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. One of total college dude bro humor. And I don't know if this is because because I know you and I've met you before, but when I saw the scene when the cop comes and bangs on the window, and right. you've got the gun, Yeah, your reaction to that, I just thought was one of the funniest things ever. Because maybe, you know, you're trying to take over this building and you might just try and be a bit inconspicuous, but no, you just sent all your rounds of bullets through yeah, that yeah, door yeah, of that yeah. cop. Yeah, that was a fun scene. <laughs> um, so, so with acting, is, is there kind of anything um, coming up or anything you, you kind no, of... No, man, I'm, I'm going back to Vancouver for a bit. I'm hoping I, I book some stuff. So if there's any influential casting directors, uh, again, you know, uh, whatever I have to do sexually, just anything, you know. And um, people listening to this might think, yeah. he's got a nice voice. I yeah. wish we could listen to his voice more regularly. Right. Can they, Byron? They can. I also have a podcast. It's called The Dry Shave Show. Me and a friend of mine, we talk politics, current events, uh, and history. It's called The Dry Shave Show. It's on Podbeam. Uh, it's also on iTunes. And also you could, uh, yeah, follow me on Instagram, Byron Bertram. Like me on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter. Subscribe to me on YouPorn. And, uh, yeah. Good stuff, Byron. Thanks for your time. All right, thank you. We are still here in Shropshire. You might be able to hear stormy weather outside. I don't know what it's like where you're listening to the podcast, but I'm looking out the window. It's very wet. I don't think I'm going to leave my parents' attic conversion today. Back down to London on Tuesday, ahead of a show on Thursday, which we're performing with some amazing magicians. I'm going to be speaking to the magician that has won more awards than any other magician. We're going to talk to him about magic competitions. We're going to talk to him about his career. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but it's, it's a big name from the world of magic. He's won pretty much everything there is to win so that's going to be really exciting i know everyone very much enjoyed the charlie caper episode and he was obviously a real winner a few people had problems actually with the charlie caper episode only the first 15 17 minutes downloaded when they first downloaded the podcast if you had that problem it is a 47 minute podcast if you delete the podcast and download it again you should get the full 47 minutes with charlie caper and i wouldn't want you to miss out because it is fantastic so go back and listen to the charlie caper episode if you haven't go back and listen to all of our episodes if you haven't next monday we'll be giving you a brand new podcast we've got a really great guest we've got some fantastic guests lined up that we've already recorded we've got some fantastic guests that i'm going to go meet in the next few days so do not miss that we look forward to talking to you again through the medium of podcast on talking trick ed kane should be with me next week i know there's been a bit of a break no ed kane this week he had to get down to london earlier than i did though unfortunately no ed kane to bounce off this week but he'll be back next week and so will we i love doing comedy because like most comedians i'm mentally ill because you know, comedy does attract a disproportionate amount of socially awkward neurotic asperger's ridden societal rejects that constantly needs validation from drunk strangers <laughs> I think it happened from school. I was a class clown in school because I got picked on. It was the only way I knew how to defend myself because I went to an all-Asian school that felt like a black sheep except the opposite color. And Chinese kids made fun of me all day because I wasn't academic, I was a little overweight. I was one of the few white kids there. This one kid, David Luong, every day. Fuck it, I still have emotional scar tissue. Every day, I just be like, oh, Byron, ooh, Byron, ha, ooh, Byron, make you flinch, ha, ha. Ooh, 
You're gonna fail your math exam, fat boy. <laughs> You're gonna have to go to summer school now, stupid Guaylo. <laughs> stupid, stupid, so stupid. <laughs> you like that? Well. <laughs> you know what's funny about doing that is people get offended when I do that voice. But it's always white people getting offended on behalf of Chinese people who think it's funny. Chinese people laugh, and a white guy be like, that's racist. I'm like, but the Chinese people are laughing. They don't know real racism. I know real racism. Okay. Because I got a doctorate in human rights equality at the University of No Sense of Humor Douchebaggery with a minor in quinoa. And then as soon as he's explaining this, a Chinese guy walks in front of him and be like, You're so funny, let me buy you a drink. You sound just like my cousin, Benson. <laughs> One guy said it's racist when you do the Chinese voice because you never hear Chinese comedians make fun of how white people talk. I'd love to hear Chinese comedians make fun of white people. Be like, you ever hear how white people talk? When white people talk, they sound so stupid. Every day they're like, hey Gordy, hey Doug, let's drink some beer, smoke some pot, and not study for the piano recital. <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> hey, if you're still offended at that joke, you know what, I'm allowed to do that joke, because my girlfriend is Japanese and she hates Chinese people. <laughs> I was just in Dubai, crazy place, Dubai. Amazing place, it's like Las Vegas, except without the, the fun. <laughs> and they got this crazy SkyTrain system there, and they got the announcements in Arabic and in English, it's awesome, it's like, dung, 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 and then they do it in English. Your next station is, it's like, what a relief, I thought I must my stop. <laughs> That's one before Hamalala, and then I have to transfer to the la line. <laughs> I'm glad you guys are laughing, because I did that joke there, it didn't get the same reaction. <laughs> you guys have been great, I'm Bob Thank you very much.